1: a Catholic voice wherever you are. And I am happy to uh, share, again, uh, some good news for you. Uh, Of course, we are picked up all around the world with the Radio Maria family, and uh, it is great that uh, what we do here in Canada is shared all over the world. And so uh, we've been receiving a great response uh, from many lovers of Bishop Sheen. Uh, It is great for them to know that Bishop Sheen is back on the radio, And uh, we are sharing uh, these lessons that millions tuned in each week to. And so today we're going to share an audio clip from the television series, Life is Worth Living. And uh, Bishop Sheen gave a talk entitled, His Four Writers. And now Bishop Sheen is an Emmy award-winning television personality. In 1952, he won the Emmy for the Most Outstanding Personality on Television And he beat, uh, in that year's competition, the likes of Lucille Ball and Milton Berle and many other popular uh, television personalities. And so uh, he was chosen. And, uh, of course, many comedians will always thank their writers uh, for their uh, script. And, of course, Bishop Sheen thanked his writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we'll uh, listen to that today. And then we will have a catechism lesson Uh, And we'll be talking about the mother of Jesus. And so I would ask you to stay tuned for that. And so before we begin, let us pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. And so now he would ask you to sit back and relax and enjoy this reflection entitled, My Four Writers.
2: Friends, I received a very interesting letter this week from Massachusetts. It seems as if this particular individual was stopping in an inn in the Berkshires, wanted to hear me on Tuesday night. And he went into the parlor of this inn, and Milton Burrow was off. I still belong to the tradition there was no room in the inn. He seemed rather a determined individual, so he went into the bar where there was a much bigger crowd, and they were listening to me, and the talk was on alcoholism probably have been in more bars and have done less drinking than any man in the United States. (laughs) As we promised you, tonight our subject is to be our four writers. And speaking of writers, great credit must be given to comedians. Have you ever noticed that at the end of a program like Milton Berle, Red Skelton, and Goebel, and others... Gary Moore, that they always will flash the names of their writers. In other words, these men very humbly are saying, I'm saying something very funny, but it was written by these individuals. Have you ever seen a telecast by a politician? And after the telecast, have you ever seen the ghostwriter's name? Yes. Think of all the people today that are writing books. They sign their names. You look in the preface. I'm reading a ghost-written book at the present time. And I look for the name of the ghost writer in the preface. Not there. So I want to be honest with you and give you the names of my four writers. But first of all, let me give them to you in terms of their profession. The first one is a collector of internal revenue. (laughs) The second one is a reporter. The third is a physician. And the fourth is an official in a fish company. Should I say, spell it that way? But at any rate, that's what he is. Now those are my four writers, as you see they come from various careers and categories of life. They actually never write anything I say, because nothing that I say is written. I merely think about it, do considerable research, pray over it, meditate over it, and then the night before I give it once in French and once in uh, Italian, A little rehearsals to myself and then you get in English, or is it English? <laughs> Now the names of them. Here are the names of the four writers. The first, the collector of internal revenue, is Matthew. The reporter is Mark. The physician is Luke. And the the fisherman is John. They wrote very early. For example, uh, Matthew wrote the gospel in Aramaic around the year 42, and then in Greek around the year 50. And Mark wrote between 50 and 63. And Luke wrote between 60 and 63. And John wrote about the year 100. And they wrote to different audiences. What they write will be very different, first of all, because when light reflects on a certain substance, it depends upon the nature of the substance, how the light is thrown forth. So, when inspiration comes to these men, they react according to their individuality. And in addition to that, they talk to different audiences. For example, the, uh, the gospel of each will vary because Matthew was writing to the Jews. Mark was writing to the Romans. Luke was writing to the Gentiles in general, but in particular the Greeks. And John was writing to all Christians. Now, a word about each, and first, a word about our collector of internal revenue. His name was Matthew, and I should not say that he was a collector of internal revenue. He was a collector of internal revenue. (laughs) The reason was, he was a quizlet. He was a very disloyal citizen, because he was collecting taxes for the conqueror of the country, namely the Romans. He was therefore very much like, for example, a Pole who today might collect taxes from the Poles for the Soviets. You can imagine, therefore, how much he was hated. And he had his tax office at Capernaum, the main road between Damascus and the Mediterranean. Naturally, when uh, this very disloyal, unpatriotic individual was collecting taxes, our blessed Lord called him, said, Matthew, follow me, and he became an apostle and he completely changed and it's interesting that when he wrote his gospel, you still see the tax collectors. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if, uh, if tax collectors would, uh, would treat us as we do when we shave? Stop when they get to the skin, huh? Someone said it's very hard to keep the government and a wife these days. Matthew began writing his gospel, naturally you have continuous references to money. For example, he uses the word tribute, piece of money, and talent. Words that are not found in any other gospel. No one else speaks of gold, silver, and brass. Matthew, he was used to counting. Now, Matthew wrote for the Jews. And when he became an apostle, he began to discover the Old Testament which he never knew was a Quisley. And 129 distinct times, Matthew goes back to the Old Testament, turns over the pages of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Macchaeus, David, and all the other prophets and the law. He sums them all up, referring to the life of Christ, saying, these are the prophecies that are announcing the Messiah, the Son of God. As a matter of fact, he piles up such a cumulative evidence of the prehistory of Christ, that he affirms that he is the son of the living God. And this man who before was a quizling, who had no respect at all for the great traditions of his country, who had never paid any attention or heed to the great articles and prophecies of the Old Testament, now became becomes a great lover of tradition and history. He becomes a great patriarch, Because he found his God. And that brings us now to our uh, second writer, Mark. Mark lived in Jerusalem. His mother was apparently very well to do, and it was to her house that Peter went after he was released from prison. Mark was a reporter, he was not an apostle. Mark really had a terrific nose for news. believe me, he would put many of our reporters to shame, Mark. Because let me tell you how anxious Mark was to get news. (laughs) When our blessed Lord was arrested in the garden, the apostle fled. Not the reporter. He was there. He had to hurry out to get the news. And all he had on him, he was in such a hurry for the uh, morning edition. All he had on him was a sheet. Can you imagine Walter Winchell going out in a sheet to get him? Well, Mark went out in a sheet at night, and he was so anxious to report what was happening that he followed along uh, our blessed Lord as he was being arrested by the Roman soldiers. And finally, one of the Roman soldiers spied this reporter walking alongside him, and he grabbed Mark, pulled off the sheet, and Mark ran naked into the night. And that level of reporting continued all through his life, and he became the reporter for Peter. So that the Gospel of Mark is actually the Gospel of Peter. That is one of the reasons why you find so many details in the Gospel of Mark. Naturally, a fisherman is always watching a cork in the water. Therefore, he has a tremendous capacity for details. Well, everything that was in the Gospel of Mark, Peter told Mark. He wrote it down. Hence you will find, for example, six instances where our blessed Lord looked. There's a certain kind of look on individuals. He also numbers the people that sat down on the grass. Mark was the one who noticed that our Lord was asleep in the head of the boat with his head on the pillow. And we also know that he was reporting for Peter because he's the one that tells the story about how our Lord cured Peter's mother-in-law was very sick. (laughs) I wonder if Peter was grateful for that miracle. I believe he was grateful. Because otherwise, Peter would not have told Mark. And another proof that uh, what he wrote came from uh, Peter is the fact that Peter, in his humility, had Mark leave out everything uh, that uh, was favorable to it. For example, uh, there in the uh, visit to Caesarea Philippi, there's no instance of Peter being called the Rock. But Mark puts in the rebuke, of our blessed Lord, to Peter, who tempted him from the cross. You will also find Mark saying that when our blessed Lord came to the garden, he found that he had three apostles asleep, and he spoke to Peter, saying, Simon, sleepest thou? Mark is the one who tells the story of the denial of Peter. All things that would prejudice Peter, Peter in his humility, told Mark. Is it any wonder, then, the fifth great reporter who had such a fondness for detail and accuracy and who went to Rome and was there in Rome the same time that Peter was there and wrote for the Romans. Is it any wonder that he should have sort of emphasized for the Romans the great power of Christ? Because that was what appealed to the Roman people power. Through this narration of power, the reporter would bring out the idea, the same idea of Matthew, that he was Christ, the son of the living God. Fitting to it is that this reporter who paid so much attention to detail should today have as his burial ground that great cathedral so rich in architectural detail, St. Mark's event. And that brings us to our third writer, Luke. Luke was a physician. Luke was a Gentile. He was raised in Antioch and Greek civilization. We know that he was a physician, first of all, because Paul called him my most beloved physician. And we know, too, from the writings. This is very interesting that you can pick out from the writings of Luke, he also wrote uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Certain Greek words which would indicate uh, that uh, the story were written by a physician. For example, when our blessed Lord said it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, all the other evangelists have the Greek word raphis, which means a sewing needle. But what kind of a needle do you think Luke has in his gospel? Baloney, a surgical needle. (laughs) The physician is coming out. He distinguishes between two kinds of leprosy. Out of the six miracles that he narrates, five of the miracles have to do with healing. Mark, in his gospel, tells of a woman who was suffering from an issue of blood for 12 years, and Mark said and she had spent all of her money on the physicians and was no better but worse. Luke softens that a bit often, uh, Luke says she could not be helped. In other words, she was beyond medical power. But he was not going to allow Mark to say that about the doctors. (laughs) And Mark wrote for the Gentiles, and particularly the Greeks. Now, naturally, as Mark was writing for the Romans, who understood power, so Luke is writing now for the Greeks, who were the people of universalism. That is to say, they loved all humanity. That when uh, Alexander conquered the Persians, it was he who said that God is the common father of all men. And Luke, therefore, transcends all nationality in his gospel. You will find that he's the one, for example, that tells the story of the visit of the Magi. They were peoples of another land. He is also the one who tells the story of the good Samaritans. He narrates the incident of Zacchaeus the publican and the Gentile publican who came into a great spiritual inheritance. He is the one who, in his love of universalism who shows that Christ is the great healer, the healer of all men, and he is the only one of the evangelists who quotes Isaiah about the healing mission of Christ. And he is the only one who says of our blessed Lord that he said, preach and heal. He too is the one in his love of universalism in order to appeal to the Greeks. Who emphasized, for example, the fact that women were important in the great economy of Christianity. And 43 times the word woman is used by Luke. Almost every woman of the New Testament gospel stories is to be found in Luke. He is the one, too, who appeals to sinners, mentions the term 16 times more than any of the other evangelists, because the one of whom he was speaking and writing, Christ the Son of the living God, was the Savior and Redeemer of all men. And it is particularly interesting, it is indeed impressive, that St. Luke, who was a physician, who therefore was skilled in obstetrics, who knew all of the facts of life and death, that he who might be the only one of all of the evangelists who might be expected to deny one of the fundamental facts of Christianity, yet is the one man who affirms it above all the others, namely the virgin birth. Finally, we come to the last and the greatest of them all, John. John the Eagle. John, the young man, was impetuous, rather egotistic, more bent on seeking first place certainly than Peter. Probably, his love of primacy came in part from the fact that his father was richer than the other fishermen because his father had servants and the fact that his mother Salome had some money because she distributed her substance. And then in addition to that, Salome was related to the Blessed Mother, so John had pretty good connections, (laughs) being a cousin of our Lord. So it was very natural for a young man of this kind to push himself a bit forward. And hence you always find John, in the early part of the story of the Gospels, asserting himself. One day he's in a quarrel as to who would be the first of the apostles. And our blessed Lord had to put a child in the midst of them. On another occasion, it's John, who was rather intolerant because there was an exorcist who drove out a devil in the name of our Lord. John felt that power belonged to him and the other apostles, but didn't want anyone else
0: to do these spiritual work.
2: And then, typical too of John, when our Blessed Lord passed through the city of Capernaum when his last trip through it, the city refused to receive him. And John asked our Blessed Lord to rain down fire from heaven and destroy the city. And our Blessed Lord called him and his brother Bonerges, sons of thunder. Interesting wasn't it not that the son of thunder wanted to send down lightning? And then, finally, something happens. Our Blessed Lord is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, about to be crucified, and John has his mother because of the influence, the fact that she was a relative. Go to Our Blessed Lord and say, ask Our Blessed Lord if her two boys, James and John, could have places, one at the right side and the other at the left of Our Lord when he came into the kingdom. He was a real politician, that woman. (laughs) And our blessed Lord said to John, can you drink the cup which I am to drink, namely the cup of passion and the cup of suffering? And when our blessed Lord asked John that particular question, the mirror in which John reflected himself was broken. The son of Zebedee died. Our blessed Lord was saying to John, John, you are seeking glory. You want a crown, I give you a cross. John, I am telling you that you are all right in asking to be near me, but I am telling you that the only condition by which you can come close to me is by undergoing a cross and the crucifixion just as I am doing. And at that moment, John changed. And is it any wonder then that John, who had written the Apocalypse, John, who lived to be an old man after having been exiled in the 14th year of the reign of the Emperor Domitian to the Isle of Patmos, is it any wonder that John... Who now looking over Christianity spread throughout the entire Roman Empire, seeing that the gospels had been spread throughout the then knowing world, seeing also that the apostles, all the epistles of Paul, had been written and read, and the great Christian tradition and the sayings of the Savior had spread like a prairie fire from Galatia to Ephesus and Ephesus to Corinth and Corinth on to Rome. Is it any wonder that this man, when he sat down in the fullness of his old age to write the gospel, should affirm what was already in the other three, should affirm the great Christian tradition that Christ is the Son of God, and should do it out of the crises of his own life? And so you find that when John begins to write his gospel, he divides it into two parts. And in the first part of the gospel of John, you have the manifestation of the glory of glory of Christ, as John depicts the seven miracles, each of which reveal him to be the Son of God. Here is power, but a power that is not accepted by people. John then comes to the second part, after quoting a prophecy of Isaiah. And in the second part, our blessed Lord now speaks only to his apostles, and our Lord speaks of his glory. A new kind of glory, And the glory of which our blessed Lord spoke was his cross. Father, the hour is cut. Glorify thy son. Son would now see that the crisis of his own life was the crisis of the life of Christ. That this cross of his was the supreme manifestation of his love. And was his glory and would be purchased eternally for human nature through his resurrection. And John understood that gospel so very well that he concludes his own story by saying that he stood at the foot of the cross. And one wonders as John stood at the foot of the cross. He did not look up at the right and left side and see there the places that he had asked for from his blessed Savior, occupied by thieves. And so John... Looking back now, concludes his gospel, speaking of all that love that he had known by leaning on the the master's breath. If I had written all that the Savior had done, the world would not be large enough to contain the books thereof. These are my, my writers. They can be
0: yours.
1: Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll free at 1 866 357 4336, or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics, such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you once again for joining me for this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. We will now have uh, Bishop Sheen share with us a catechism lesson, and this lesson will be on the Mother of Jesus. Please enjoy. Friends peace be to you.
0: At this point in the unfolding of the divine mysteries and Christian doctrine, we come to some very important words in the creed, namely that our blessed Lord was born of the Virgin Mary. We will try to give, first of all, some evidence for this. Secondly, show how it was necessary in the present plan of the world's redemption. First of all, the evidence for it that our Lord was born of the Virgin Mary. In order to understand proofs, we must realize that the Gospels were not first. they what tradition. Every member in the early church that is to say, after Pentecost and until the Gospels were written, every member of the Church already knew about the miracle of the loaves and fishes, about the resurrection, and about the virgin birth. It's something like, for example, the knowledge that we have that World War I began in 1914. We read that in the book. The fact that we read it in the book does not create... The belief in us does it. It merely confirms what we already know. So too the gospel set down in a more systematic way that which was already believed. Just suppose that you lived during the first 25 years of the church after Pentecost. How would you have answered the question? How can I know what I am to believe? You could not say, I will look in the Bible. There was no New Testament Bible then. You would have to believe what the church was teaching in those days. Never once, for example, did our Lord tell the witnesses of his life to write. He wrote only once in his life and that was in the sand. But he did tell his apostles to preach in his name, be witnesses to him until the ends of the earth. Hence those that take this or that text out of the gospel to prove something are very often isolating it from the historical atmosphere in which it arose and from the word of mouth which passed on Christ's truth. When finally the gospels were written, they recorded a tradition. They did not create it. It was already there. After a while, men had decided to put in writing this tradition. And that explains the beginning of the Gospel of St. Luke. You remember how he begins? That thou mayest know the verity of these words in which thou hast been instructed. See, he assumes... That people already had been instructed. The Gospels did not start the church. The church started the Gospels. The church did not come out of the Gospels. It was the Gospels that came out of the church. The church preceded the New Testament, not the New Testament, the church. Men did not believe in the resurrection because the gospel said there was a resurrection. The gospel writers wrote down the story of the crucifixion, for example, and the resurrection because they believed it. Now, in like man, the church did not come to believe in the virgin birth because the gospels tell us there is a virgin birth. It was because the living word of God in his mystical body, the church already believed it and they set it down in the gospels. If the apostles who lived with our Lord, who heard him speak in the open hills and in the temple, if the apostles did not teach the virgin birth, no one else would have taught it. No one else would have written it it was too unusual an idea for men to make up it would have been ordinarily too difficult for acceptance if it had not come from Christ himself now the one man who might be inclined to doubt the virgin birth on natural grounds was the man who writes it in his gospel, namely, Saint Luke. I say, on natural grounds. Because Luke was a physician. And yet it's the medical doctor who sets down the virgin birth and tells us most about it. Many of the teachings of our Lord were denied by heretics because there was a protest against Christ in the church from the very beginning. Now, these heretics denied some of his doctrines, but there was one teaching that no early heretic denied, and that is that our Lord was born of a virgin. One would think that would be the very first doctrine to be attacked. But the virgin birth was accepted both by heretics and by believers alike. It would have been rather silly to try to convince anyone of the virgin birth if he did not already believe in the divinity of Christ. That is why probably Mary did not speak of it herself until after the resurrection. And she told the apostles and others, although certainly Joseph, Elizabeth, and probably John the Baptist already knew of it. Of course, our Lord himself all the time need not say that. Now we come to an objection that is often urged. Does not the gospel say that our blessed Lord had brothers? If he had brothers, then Mary had other children. If Mary had other children, then she was not always the virgin. Now we will try to give some answer to that. I stand in the pulpit very often and I begin my sermon by saying, my dear brother, does that mean that everyone in the congregation and I had exactly the same mother? Or is it just a form of speech? Now that wide use of the word brother that we have in our modern language was used also in a very wide sense by scriptures. In the scriptures the word brother means a relative sometimes a friend. Let us take for example Abraham and Lot. Abraham calls Lot his brother. As we read in the book of Genesis, pray let us have no strife between us two, between my shepherds and thine. For we are brother. Now Lot was not a brother of Abraham. He was a nephew. But that's the way the scripture speaks of friends, and relatives. Thirdly, there are several, indeed, who are mentioned as brothers of Christ, such as James. But they are indicated elsewhere as the sons of another Mary. I mean elsewhere in Scripture. Namely, Mary, the sister of the mother of our Lord, and the wife of Cleophas. Then again, James, who was particularly mentioned as the brother of our Lord, as, for example, by St. Paul, who said, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. But this James is regularly named in the enumeration of the apostles as the son of another father, namely Alphaeus. And you'll find that recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Furthermore, the so-called brethren of our Lord are nowhere mentioned in the scripture as the sons and the daughters of Joseph and Mary. Nowhere in scripture is it said that Joseph had begotten brothers and sisters of Jesus. As nowhere does it say that Mary had other children besides her divine son. Now we come to some rather unusual proofs of the virgin birth from sacred scripture. I say unusual because I mean apart from the very obvious references that there are in St. Luke. Two of these proofs we're going to draw from the Gospel of St. John and also from the writings of St. Paul. First of all, St. John. St. John assumes the virgin birth. We say this because throughout the Gospel of St. John, there is the assumption of a double birth. We are, first of all, born of our parents. And then we are born of God. The waters of the Holy Spirit in baptism. Remember, that is what our Lord meant when he told Nicodemus that he must be born again. First birth he took from his mother and the flesh. Second is the birth of the Spirit. Now, what makes us Christians is not being born of our parents, but being born of God through baptism. Now, notice when St. John speaks of this second birth, namely our birth of God. He practically assumes the virgin birth. Because he said in the beginning of his gospel that our Lord gave to us, quote, the power to become the sons of God. And he tells us that this happens by a birth. But he immediately says this is not a human birth. And then he goes on to enumerate the reasons why it's not a human. He said, it is neither of blood, nor of sex, nor of the human will, but solely by the power of God. Now, this statement of John certainly assumed a Christian and common understanding of the virgin birth. What is blood? What is sex? What is the human will? The human birth. All of these elements are eliminated in the story of the birth of our Lord. The Blessed Mother says that she is a virgin, that she knows not man. God says that the power of God will overshadow her. You get the same elements you see in the Gospel of St. John that you get in the Gospel of St. Luke. How could any Christian in those days have understood this spiritual kind of a birth unless they understood the virgin birth? Therefore, it already happened. No one who at the end of the first century read the beginning of the Gospel of St. John, was amazed that St. John should have spoken of a new generation without sex. They were not amazed because at this time, the whole Christian world knew that this is how Christianity came into being. The virgin birth, in other words, is God's idea, not man's. No one would ever have thought of it if it had not happened. Now we come to another proof from the Gospel of Saint not the Gospel, but the Epistles of Saint Paul. Saint Paul also assumes the virgin birth. Now, as you know, the epistles were originally written in Greek. When Saint Paul speaks of the birth of our Lord, he uses in Greek a very peculiar expression. Let us take, for example, St. Paul's message to the Galatians. Quote, Then God sent out his son on a mission to us. He took birth. Notice that. He took birth from a woman. Took birth as a subject of the law. To make us sons by adoption. Whenever St. Paul describes the birth of our Lord, he never uses the ordinary word to describe birth. In other words, he never uses the word to describe a human birth, which is the result of a conjunction of man and woman. The word that is always used in every other New Testament passage. Now, the common word in Greek is some form of the Greek word. Genao, G-E-N-N-A-O. That means a birth such as you have and I have. But St. Paul, in four instances, speaks of the temporal beginnings of our Lord. Remember, the person of our Lord was eternal. It was only his human nature that had a beginning. Now, in the four instances where St. Paul touches on, the temporal beginnings of our Lord. As a man. In those four instances, St. Paul uses an entirely different Greek word because it was not the ordinary kind of birth. He used some form of the word ginomai, g-i-n-o-m-a-i. Never once does he employ that other word which means common ordinary birth such as all mortals have. He never uses that to describe the birth of our Lord. He uses always a word which means like to come into existence or to become. One very interesting proof of this is in a passage in the Galatians, chapter 4, verses 23, 24, and 29. In that epistle, St. Paul uses the word to be born, that is to say in the ordinary way, three times. He uses it to describe the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Jacob. But, when he comes to the birth of our Lord, he refuses to use that word. He uses another word, a form of the verb, you because the birth of our Lord was a virgin. You will find in the New Testament 33 times some description of the birth of a child. And in every single instance, the New Testament uses the word "genau," the ordinary birth like yours and mine. But that word is never used once concerning the birth of our Lord. Our Lord as a person had an eternal birth. Inasmuch as he assumed human nature, he had a temporal birth, a beginning, Yes, the beginning came from the virgin. See, the reason of the difference is this. Our Lord was born into the human family, into the human race. He was not born of it. God formed Adam, the first man, without the seed of a man. So why should we shrink from the thought that the new Adam would also be formed without the seed of a man? As Adam was made of the earth into which God breathed a living soul, so the body of Christ was formed in the flesh of Mary by the Holy Spirit. And so firmly rooted was the virgin birth in Christian tradition that none of the early apologists ever had to defend the virgin birth. It was believed in even by heretics, as we say, just as much as the crucifixion was, because... It stood on exactly the same footing as an historical fact. Here's another interesting point. There are two birth stories in the gospel. The birth of our Lord and the birth of John the Baptist. But notice the different stress... The gospel story of John the Baptist centers on the father, Zachary. The gospel story of the birth of Jesus centers on the mother. Why does it center on the mother? Again, because of... Now you may ask, well, why is there a virgin birth? Could our blessed Lord have come to this earth in any other way? Oh, certainly. Our Lord really need not have been born at all. But given the present order of things, why is there a virgin birth? Well, now here we come to something that is a little difficult to understand and we hope that we, can, that we can make it clear. The reason we believe in a virgin birth and the reason in the present order our Lord chose that is, first of all, he wanted someone very good to bring him into this world. No great triumphant leader makes his entrance into the city over dust-covered roads when he could come on a flower-strewing avenue. Had infinite purity chosen any other port of entrance into humanity but that of human purity, it would have created a tremendous difficulty for us. Namely, how could he be sinless if he was born of a sin-laden humanity? If a brush dipped in black becomes black, And if a cloth takes on the color of the dye, would not he, in the eyes of the world, have partaken of the guilt in which all humanity shared? If he came to this earth through the wheat field of moral weakness, he certainly would have some chaff hanging onto the garment of his human nature. In other words, our problem is this How could God become man and yet be a sinless man? First of all, he had to be man. He had to be like us in order that he might be involved in some way in our humanity, in order that he might take upon himself our sins. But at the same time, though our blessed Lord had to be a perfect man, nevertheless he could not be a sinful man. He had to be a sinless man. He had in some way to be outside of that terrible current of sin that has passed on and infected all humanity. You see the problem? He had to be a man. He had to be different from all other men in the sense that he had to be our redeemer and sinless and the new Adam. The problem is very much like that of a ship. Imagine a ship sailing on a sea that's very dirty and foul. It wishes to pass to another sea or lake immediately nearby where the waters are crystal clear and pure now evidently there has to be some break between the foul waters and the clear waters otherwise they would merge so what happens there is often a lock built so a ship sails along those foul waters then comes into the lock where the foul waters are completely separated from it. and then the ship finally lifted into the clear waters. So our blessed Lord in some way had to be related to the sinful humanity that went on before, related in as much as he would be a man, but because he would be sinful. And at the same time, he had to be sinless so that he himself would not need redemption. It would be our redeemer. Now that lock that lifted our blessed Lord out of that sinful current of humanity and made him the sinless man, the new head of the human race, was the perfect birth. And then think of the beautiful, beautiful application it has for all of us. The Blessed Mother is the Inspiration of everyone. Mother is the protectress of the virgin and the virgin is the inspiration of motherhood. Without mothers, there would be no virgins in the next generation. Without the virgins, mothers would forget that sublime ideal lives beyond the earth. How often, for example, when you visit someone, you hear it, said, oh, that child looks exactly like well, if we had looked at our blessed Lord he would have said he looks exactly like his mother he got something from his father's side namely divinity but he also got something from his mother's side namely a sinless humanity that's why we
1: you are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you once again for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. We hope you enjoyed these two reflections on Bishop Sheen's four writers and the catechism lesson on the mother of jesus i uh, know that you can re-listen to this broadcast by clicking on our on-demand section of our web page and so uh, and of course share these programs with your friends and family members uh, facebook is a great thing twitter all the social media and so we'd ask you to share these with literally thousands of people uh, we have listeners from all over the world and so you'd be surprised what your share can do and uh, what life can be changed uh, by listening to a few uh, words from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.
0: You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.